I was also thinking about that, thinking about how do you motivate people to have gratitude, because that was really the issue. How do you motivate? I begin to realize it is hard to convince people, it's hard to convince people how good they have it when they've never experienced how bad, how bad it can really be. It's hard to convince somebody how good they have it when that's all they know. You know, so to motivate your child to be grateful for something that is normal is hard to do. But let's say your child did spend a couple years in a concentration camp and you rescued them out. And the first meal you gave them spaghetti after two years of gruel, he will be full of grace and gratitude and thanksgiving. And when that desire that you have longed for is finally fulfilled, what comes out of that is gratitude that's produced from the experience of your life. And there's nothing like it in the world. And I think it's really true for people who've experienced salvation for the first time. Like real salvation. I'm not talking, I said it because my mom wants me to. I went forward because the music made me happy or sad. I believe in Jesus because I need him. And my life's a wreck. When he comes into your life and he saves you, there is a real gratitude that will start coming over you that should start coloring the whole rest of your life. You won't see things the same way. And that's going to be the point of my message today. We have spent the last three weeks on gratitude. And I just want to talk one more time, not theoretically, which we kind of did the first two weeks, not even practically, how do you live this out? But I want to talk experientially. Have you ever experienced, I mean, real salvation, real gratitude? Because if you have, you should be a different person. And if you're not, you know, you're somebody who lives the way everybody else does, grumbles just like the guy down the street, then maybe you need to question, have I really ever tasted salvation? And so the more, this morning, the title is going to be Dry Roads. I'm going to use an illustration, and we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians 15. So if you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15, in a minute, we're going to look at verses 29 to 34. And it's going to be a relatively easy sermon. Not many points. But I want to begin with an illustration that I'm calling Dry Roads. So this past year, many of you know my son plays football in Chicago for Wheaton College. Every home game, we like to drive to it on a Saturday. It's a three and a half hour drive from Grand Rapids. And it's not a bad drive, except I hate Chicago traffic. I hate it. I loathe it. Like it really, it's a pain, to be honest with you. You know, when you look on your little uh, map, on Google, and you see a red line on 94 or 294. Oh, I'm going to be stuck in traffic forever. And it just kind of makes you a little crazy. So sip on that coffee and grumble at your wife. Oh, I hate this traffic. It's just normal. It comes out of you. Well, the last two games of my son's uh, season this year, there was still bad traffic, but something else happened. The second to the last game, we drove, no problem. We get to the game, no problem. He wins the game. It's a lot of fun. But on the way home, the radar said it is going to start snowing 
from Benton Harbor to Grand Rapids, and it is going to be a wet, sloppy snow. And there's going to be patches where you are not going to be able to even see. I'm like, oh, no. Here we go. Sure enough, we get to Benton Harbor, and all of a sudden, the roads became like ice rinks, where you have to white-knuckle it 50 miles an hour in some places. People have their hazards on blinking in front of you, and every, every once in a while, a car zooms off the side or does a 360. You're like, oh, I hate this. We decided to take it to uh, 94 to Kalamazoo to take 131, thinking it won't be as bad there as it was near the Saugatuck shoreline, and sure enough, it was terrible. We get to Kalamazoo, and there are four cars smashed, ambulances are flying, and the road is just, you feel like you're skating. We made it home that night. It's a long trip. We made it home that night, and I felt like I just escaped the Grim Reaper, you know, where, praise the Lord, I made it, I'm alive, I was just happy I was alive. But the problem was my son's team won, which meant they were playing in Chicago the next week. And if you remember this past couple weeks ago, it was bad, worse than the week before. From Thursday through Saturday, they said it's just going to be an engine of lake effect snow. It's funny, if you ever talk to Arnie Winnell, Arnie's not in here, say, Arnie, I hate the lake effect snow. And he goes, it's just snow. I said, no, it's lake effect snow. And sure enough, it was coming, but it was coming fast. And at the same time, that's when Buffalo, New York was getting seven feet of snow. And I'm watching, and we have to drive through it on Saturday morning. So I'm watching a satellite. In my mind, God has given me a mind that drives me crazy. All I can imagine is driving through seven feet of snow. And every time you, you hear the, the news reports, stay off the roads, travel at your own risk. You may be stuck in a snowdrift for three days, so make sure you have enough food. And I'm thinking, oh man, we're going to slide off the road. We're going to go into some river or something, and I'm going to sink, and it's going to freeze over me. Or even worse, I might go over a bridge where it says bridge may be icy, and I might start spinning, and then careen off the bank, and then land on a locomotive train, and it will take me to Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> Have you ever been to Newark, New Jersey? You don't want to go there. I mean, the worst things, I mean, I get the worst thing. And so here it is, Saturday morning. My wife knows I'm, a, I'm paranoid. I said, we got to leave early. We got to leave early. So we do. We leave really early for the game. We get on Alpine, and the snow is blowing across where you barely see, and you got to follow that two-track that the car in front of you set. We get on 131, and we're behind this truck, that's fishtailing. Oh, get on 196 and you take that turn. That feels like you're just going to start spinning. And so I'm just going slow the whole way. We get to Saugatuck and then start heading down towards South Haven. And all of a sudden it starts lightening up. We get to Benton Harbor. When I get to Benton Harbor, all of a sudden angels started singing in the sun. <laughs> the sun came out. And I had to get off at exit 27 in Benton Harbor. I told Michelle we're getting some Panera coffee, you know, for the rest of the way. But I wanted to get out so I could park the car in the parking lot and kiss the ground. I kissed the ground. <laughs> I had gravel on my lips. I didn't care. I, they were dry roads. And then we started heading into Chicago, and there was traffic. But I didn't care. 
The roads were dry. And everybody was enjoying the dry roads slowly together. And nobody was flipping each other off because it wasn't icy. It was wonderful. But in that moment of being in Benton Harbor where I don't have to face this anymore, it was sheer gratitude. Thank you, God. I'm alive. I'm not in Newark, New Jersey on a road of a train. To me, when you get saved, something like that should happen in your life. Something should click where everything that once bothered you should not be a big deal anymore. The, the things that worried you, the things that frustrated you should be kind of like, no big deal, ain't so bad, I'm alive, I am not condemned. That's what this passage in 1 Corinthians is all about. We're going to walk through it. It's about gratitude, but it's inferred gratitude. You won't read or catch the word gratitude or thankfulness in here. You will just, you'll catch it in between the lines. It's riddled underneath the surface of what he's saying here. But I picked this passage because of the first time I read this, it hit me. It was sort of like my dad telling me when I started becoming an older person, I graduated college and I wanted to get a fun job. He pulled me aside and he goes, Chris, don't you think it's time to grow up and be a man? This is one of those passages that as a Christian, there, there needs to be a time when you grow up and you stop living like you used to. You stop whining and complaining and you start becoming like Christ. That's what this verse did for me. It woke me up. And it said, Chris, it's time to grow up in Christ. And I think the way you can tell somebody has really grown up is they're thankful. They're thankful. Let's read. I'm reading from the NIV, and I'm starting in verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And here's the part where it says grow up. Verse 34, come back to your senses as you ought. And stop sinning. For there are some of you who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. So I'm going to just take this in two parts. The first part, we're going to talk about the context of what he's saying where Paul is just going to give us raw truth. The second part, I'm going to talk about Christian truth. The first part is raw truth. The second part is Christian truth. And so he's going to talk about the blunt truth. So the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, may be one of the most important passages in Scripture, is all about the resurrection. From verse 1 all the way to the end, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. If you don't know what resurrection of the dead means, it means, here's what it means. 
And this is what Christians really believe. And I assume that all of you are Christians. That if I believe in Jesus, I'm going to still die. However, even though I'm buried, there will be a day when all those who are dead, Christ will call them, their body will, in a moment, change into a brand new, glorious body, and my soul and spirit will join up with this new body, and I'm going to live with Jesus in heaven forever. That's called resurrection. Resurrection before Jesus comes back, my soul and spirit go to be with him. I don't know what that means. I think there's a bodily sense to it. However, the ultimate resurrection is the joining of the soul, spirit, and new body so I can live with Jesus, and we're actually going to live on a brand new earth. That's resurrection, which means the grave isn't the end. That's what that means. So Paul in 1 Corinthians is going to say why that is the most important teaching in the whole Bible. So from verses 1 through 10, he's going to argue for the case of resurrection by saying, all the apostles saw Jesus after he rose again from the dead. So did I. So he's saying Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, the second part he says, those are first fruits to all those who believe in him. So the second part of 1 Corinthians is a theological argument why you need to believe in a resurrection. Now we're entering part three of his argument. And part three of his argument is just flat out, human to human, raw truth. He's just going to say, all right, here's the brass tacks. If there is no resurrection, let's entertain that for a second. If there is no resurrection, that means death wins. It gets the victory. And if death has the victory, and by death having the victory, once I'm buried, I am food for maggots the rest of my life. That's it. If death has the victory, then what's the point? Listen to what he says starting in verse 29. Verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, so I want you to contemplate that a second. If there's no resurrection, first thing he says is, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? So this is, there's a lot of argument on this point. I'm not going to dwell on it much, but there's 50 different interpretations for that single verse. It's crazy. But from what I reconcile about this, I think what was happening in the church in Corinth, there were people who were being inspired by believers' testimonies who went before them. And so they got baptized because they want to have the same faith as the heroes that went before them. However, the people that went before them died. And Paul's saying, you know those people that have inspired your faith? What if there's no resurrection? Then not only are they dead, but your baptism is a waste of time. That's basically what he's saying. So he's saying, all right, so you got baptized for the dead. So what? It means nothing. Then he continues on and he says this. He says in verse 30, and for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He's saying, if death is the final victory, everything I've done as an apostle, where I've been whipped and beaten and shipwrecked and mocked and stoned. Paul got stoned one time. People threw stones at him right out the city of Lystra, and they probably dragged him off. Some people think he even died. He said, if there's no resurrection, then what's the point of that? 
And then he continues by saying this. I face death every day, yes, as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus. Basically saying, I am suffering so you will be formed in Christ. 2 Corinthians says, I carry the death of Christ so you might carry the life of Christ because I care about you. And he's basically saying, it's been a waste of time. Why did I suffer for you? What a waste. And then the final thing, verse 32 if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? So there's some speculation as he's talking about the Christians who were going to the Colosseum. Because at this time, some Christians were going into the Colosseum and fighting wild animals. Some Christians were being rolled in animal furs, put on a post, and then light, it would light the hallways for Nero. And Paul could also be talking about all of the opposition that he considers like beasts at Ephesus who threw him in jail and didn't believe his ministry. Basically, he's saying, regardless, all of the sacrifice, all of this putting my life, my career, my, stand, my sanity in risk for Jesus, if we don't rise from the dead, it's a joke. We could actually bring it to our day and age. I thought about my own life. The job I have, if, if there's no resurrection of the dead, the job I am doing right now is the dumbest job you could ever want. It's kind of, well, people love you. Not really. Not really. Not like you think they do. They call me often and complain often. You know? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why do funerals? I... Uh, this was about a year ago, I calculated how many funerals I've done since I've been here in senior pastor since 2004. Close to 300. Close to 300 people I know have died. Well, half of them were close people in this church. In the last two years, seven dear friends. If there's no resurrection of the dead, it's all sentimental hogwash, as they say on It's a Wonderful Life. It's nonsense. Instead of calling funerals a ceremony, we should call them a Darwinian fertilizer party. Paying tribute to another worthless existence snuffed out like a candle in the wind. It's like playing fantasy football. Really. So Paul says, well, I will say this too. People might get mad about this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, why not abort your baby? Because really, life's hard. Well, they're going to miss all the fun. Yeah, but if oblivion is your end game and despair is all we're left with, what's the use? What's the use? So Paul says, look what Paul says at the end of verse 31. He basically is saying, you know, um, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, with no more than human hopes, would have gained. If the dead are not raised, here's what he says, why not just get drunk? Let's uh, eat and drink. Let's party. That's all Paul concludes. Might as well pursue pleasure and get what you can today if death is our final lot. Have you, so I started thinking about this. Have you ever asked yourself, I mean really considered this question, why do people get drunk? Like, really thought about it. 
And I know we're not allowed to talk about it in church, but we have to, because Paul is. And he's basically saying, if there's nothing beyond the grave, why don't we do what everybody else does and just live it up? In fact, that's the normal way of the world. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. This is, uh, theologians will call this the passage on dissipation. What is dissipation? It's self-indulgence without anything in return. And you'll see what I'm talking about. So 1 Peter 4.1. And some of you will really resonate with this passage. This is one of those passages when you read it. To me, it helped me. It helped me conclude that the Bible really tells the truth. Because... Man, it's like somebody read my mind when I first was saved. Look what 1 Peter 4 says. It says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, he did, he suffered in his body. Not only was he nailed to a cross, but he went through the temptations in the desert. He's saying, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. So he's saying, if you are a follower of Christ, think like Jesus. Be prepared to suffer as well. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they, those are the Christians who are done with sin, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And here's the key part. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Pagans are non-believers, those who are following the gods of this world. You have spent enough doing what pagans choose to do. What do they choose to do? They live in debauchery, which is just partying, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatries. And they are surprised that you do not join with them in their recklessness. They're surprised. Why are they surprised? Because that's the default mode for people without Christ. I got nothing but partying. That's my goal, is to have a great time. So why do they do that then? Why do they get drunk? And so what I did is I, uh, I thought back in my life and asked that question. And there is a song that gives all the answers to why people get drunk. And let me kind of set it up. So when I was in college, my roommate was from Pittsburgh. One of the guys that lives in my house was from Pittsburgh, and he invited me over to his house for the weekend. So we drove from Dayton, Ohio to Pittsburgh. And he said, hey, we got great bars in downtown Pittsburgh. And my favorite bar is the Dueling Piano Bar. So he brought me to the Dueling Piano Bar. And in this bar, there was a black piano on this side and a white piano on this side. And it was packed. I mean, there was about 1,000 people. And what they would do is they would compete against who plays the song better. And the, the people in the congregation would give a, basically a suggestion. They'd play it, and then they would clap to see who does better. It was a lot of fun, people drinking like crazy, beer was flowing, people were all singing. But then at the very end of the night, the two pianists got on their pianos, everybody gathered in the middle, and they all started playing the song, the Billy Joel Piano Man song. And I am telling you, everybody started hooping and hollering, and they put their arms around each other, and they were swaying. And they were so like, they were, their tears coming out people's eyes because these guys were playing the Billy Joel Piano Man song. And I'm pretty sure most of you know the song. 
But in that song, is going to give five heart lessons for why people drink and why people pursue pleasure. And it's terribly sad. I was watching one of those YouTube videos. Have you ever watched like a music YouTube video where they have a, uh, like a voice, a voice expert listening to a song for the very first time? And they had this African-American voice expert listening to the Billy Joel song, Piano Man, for the very first time. He puts on the headphones and he's listening and he takes off the headphones and he's just going. That song speaks to the soul. And he's right. He speaks to the non-Christian soul, the pagan soul. And this is why they love it. And this is why they get drunk. But why, we Christians, do we fall to, for the same stuff? Listen to some of the lyrics. One lyric is this old man, he comes up to the bar, he's drinking a tonic and gin, and he says to the man behind the bar, can you play me a memory? It's a sad memory, it's sweet, and I knew it complete, and then he says, when I wore a younger man's clothes. Here's what he's saying, life is so short, it's so empty. It's like sand through your fingers. You want to hold on to the great times, but you just can't. And here's an old man wishing he could have the past back that brought him joy, and now all he has is a bar and a tonic and gin. Life is like a mist that appears for a little while then vanishes away. Like just a few days ago, I was so excited for my kids to come home on Thanksgiving. I'm going to have my kids back from college I have a birthday party for my oldest daughter. They're all going to come back. It's over. They're going home today. What happened? Why can't you hold on time? Don't you miss being a kid when you didn't have responsibilities? Summers were long. You could chase fireflies and go to sleep with that jar by your bed and your mom tucks you in. But then you turn to an adult, and life is responsibilities. You got schedule to keep. Wonder fades. Your body gets old. It gets tired because life just stinks on this side of the grave. The crowd sings. We're all in the mood for a melody, and you have us feeling all right. People drink to feel. They want to feel something. They can have joy for just that moment. It's worth it to escape the monotony. Drunkenness for many is an escape from hopelessness and hurt. Then another guy comes in, and he says this. This is a sad part. I, I would be a movie star. I could be a movie star if I could just get out of this place. It's just despair. He has all these dreams. Do you ever have all these dreams, and you realize when you get older, the majority of your dreams are never realized? We're often told as a kid, dream, and you can accomplish your dreams. Really? Really, what happens when you get about my age and a lot of those dreams you're never going to realize? You become like Uncle Rico. I can throw that football over the mountain. They would have saw me in seventh grade. I'd be, I'd be better than Brady. You know what I'm talking about? Dream, we have these dreams, but then what happens? All these dreams fade and we're trapped in a room without doors and windows and that room is called despair. That's what they're singing about. 
And then one of the best lines is they're sharing a drink they call loneliness because it's better than drinking alone. The Bible calls this alienation. Sin has separated us from God. Sin has alienated us from each other where we always feel like a stranger all the time. We always feel like we're in the margins. We always feel left out. It's from sin. And the reason why some people go to a bar is supposedly everybody knows your name. That is, as long as you buy them a drink, they know your name. Stop buying them a drink, and then they'll find somebody else that they're friends with. And then... Um, we can forget about life for a while. Suffering. How, how do you make sense of suffering if there's no reward for it in another life? Seriously. The Bible says all the suffering that happens on this life is not to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. As if God is going to swallow up death and reward us for the suffering. Do you know when you swallow something, it always makes something else bigger? Suffering is going to be swallowed because it's going to make glory that much bigger. But if there's no glory, what's the point of suffering? What's the point of going through trials? I mean, let's, Dan, let's be honest. What's the point of beating Ohio State if you've got to do it again next year? It never ends. It never ends. Life is hopeless. That's why people drink. That's why people drink. You can't blame them. Did you know, uh, uh, and, um, you won't like this, but it's true. People don't drink to make Christians mad. People don't party because they want to rub it in Christians' face. People drink because they're hopeless. And they want to ignore life for a little bit. Or they don't really understand what they received in Christ. Which brings us to the next point. Look at what Paul says. So this is Christian truth. Christian truth in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this starting in verse 32. Don't be misled. He's saying kind of wake up. Wake up here. Bad company corrupts good character. He says if you keep hanging out with people whose worldview is formed from hopelessness, it's going to form your same view. You're going to start adopting the same things. But don't do that. Why? Because you need to come back to your senses and stop sinning. In this case, sin isn't the action of sin, it's the attitude of sin. It's the mindset of sin that I'm trying to... It's basically lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. The attitude of sin. Because come back to your senses and stop it. Why? Because there's a lot of people out there that don't know the things you know. They're ignorant of God. And specifically, it's this. You've been saved from death's sting. Every line in Piano Man is death's sting. It's the consequences of death. You're saved from it. You're saved from regret. Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are saved from despair where you're stuck in this room without windows and doors. You have, according to Jesus, a home that God is preparing for you. 
In my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I am going to come back so you can be where I am. You're not stuck in this room of despair. Your dreams, I believe, I was reading, I was reading a, a book by C.S. Lewis, he believes every good thing we've been giving is a shadow of what is going to be fulfilled in heaven. So your dreams, those desires you have, they aren't necessarily so you'll fulfill them here. They are so they will pull you up there because that's where they're going to be fulfilled. You have been giving gifts. Just wait till you can finally use them with your new body. It's going to be incredible. God has planted eternity in the heart of man. So the second part says, since we're not ignorant of God, and we know that we are in Christ, and we know we've been rescued from damnation, hopelessness, alienation, and meaninglessness, start living differently as you ought. That word ought, if you look in there, come back to your senses, as you ought, that means we are called to walk as Jesus does. We are called to live a life worthy of your calling. Because not everybody is. Not everybody's been given what you've been given. Jonathan Edwards kind of put it like this. He said that we, uh, we have entered a world where everybody's blind and dumb and starving in a desert. But in the middle of that desert, there's a fountain. And that fountain is shooting water that is sweet. You taste it. And it's the best, cleanest water you've ever tasted. But once you taste that water, you see. And when you see, you turn around from that fountain and you notice everybody stumbling. And they're looking. And they're needing somebody to grab their hand and pull them to the water. That's your job. But if you jump back into stumbling with them, if you jump in the same kind of life they are, where you're singing at a piano bar, and it's just the best life is, you have no hope. You're no different. I've often told Derek, one of the biggest things that changed my life is this guy, uh, Tom Petty. Went to a Tom Petty concert, and Tom Petty was in Cleveland. You guys might have heard the story. This woke me up. Tom Petty, if you know Tom Petty, he's like a skeleton, and he and he's really skinny, and he'll come up to the mic. He's usually high, and he, he'll, he'll be on the mic like this. He stumbled, and he came to Cleveland, Ohio like that, and I'm with my friend, and he gets to the mic, and all he says is, Hello, Cleveland, like that. And all my friends go, Dude, he said Cleveland. He knows he's in Cleveland like it was the greatest thing in the world, and it woke me up like, Really? This is embarrassing. A drunk guy knows Cleveland. It's like, it's like uh, the greatest words ever spoken. We have the greatest words ever spoken, and we treat it like it's dirt. Come back to your senses. Christianity's truth is the greatest thing in the world. We don't look backwards, missing the past. We're living for a future where real life is hidden in I press on 
Life is not about trying to recapture the memories of the past to wish I had a non-wrinkled face like I used to. You know, my 23-year-old self, if I could just have it back, I would have beat all the guys at flag football yesterday. But this 56-year-old man's out there limping, still throwing passes like Drew Brees, but I could have been somebody. It's ridiculous. We don't look backwards, missing the past. We're living for a future where our life is hidden in Christ. Life is not trying to recapture. It's not about losing ourselves in drunkenness and empty living, because that's what we've been saved from. Those are icy roads. Those are roads that take you off the side of the bridge and land you in Newark, New Jersey. Chasing the party is a sign you may not have really been saved in the first place. Because if you're really saved, you have tasted and you've seen that the Lord and his will is good. So that's why he ends by saying, I say this to your shame. It's really, Paul is really, a lot of times it's funny because we don't want to use guilt and shame. But Paul's not using guilt and shame. He's using words from a responsible mentor to say, you've been given everything now. Start living like it. It's like my dad saying, Chris, it's time to grow up. And to me, the way you can tell you're grown up is you say, man, I've been given another shot at this. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's all in your attitude. Christianity is a battle of attitude. A sinful attitude is one that I deserve things. I'm angry. The suffering stinks. I'm whining, there's no purpose, there's only worthlessness, I might as well get drunk. Christianity is, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. I think one of the greatest passages is Psalm 13. Go to Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is... It's kind of a dark psalm, but I call it the Thanksgiving psalm because he gets it. David gets it. And this is what I hope you get. Psalm 13 is written by David in one of the lowest times of his life. But you've got to watch the progression because this is one of those movements that I hope your heart does and learns to do because I think... A mature Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit will do this. I'm not saying life is easy. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying there are some times I really want to get drunk. I'm not saying it. Sometimes life stinks. But here's what I'm saying. I need as a mature person to let God's mind change mine. Listen to Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? So David is a victim. Whoa, where are you, God? How long will you hide your face from me? Like he's saying, life's tough. Where are you? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? A lot of you are right there. There are days when I'm right there. How long will my enemy triumph over me? And then he says, look on me and answer. And this, this is the idea that he's been praying, and it's like his prayer is 
have hit the ceiling and bounced back. He doesn't care. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. So he goes, not only is my life falling apart, but my reputation is being trashed by people who don't believe in you. I'm looking like a fool. My foes will rejoice when I fail. <laughs> what a waste to be a Christian. You got nothing. But then you hit verse 5, and it begins with that word but. And every time you see the word but, it turns everything upside down. It's like looking into Narnia, a different world you've never seen before. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices or give thanks for your salvation. You've saved me from those roads. You've saved me from the bar. You've saved me from condemnation. So my heart rejoices. What am I going to do then? I'm going to sing to the Lord. Oh, your life stinks. I don't care if it stinks. If I look back, he's been good to me. Like he's really been good to me. And that's the point. God has been so good to me. And because of that, I'm going to say this is the day he's made, and I'm going to rejoice, and I'm going to be glad in it, because it's the mature thing to do. And also, again, it's because I'm not in Newark, New Jersey. I'm not there. So, my final question for you is very simply, it's, this hasn't been too practical a one, but it's a very practical one. How's your attitude? Will you do that? Do you do that? Should you do that? I know I should. Make this Christmas season different. See it as a gift, not as a burden.